Did you always want to be an economist or are there versions of your life where you could have stayed in AI research? I don't know. Okay. Um, that is, you know, my, my trajectory was one where I changed a number of times and each time I wasn't sure that I should change, I was making these guesses about what would be better. And then I guessed economics, but under alternative scenarios, I could have guessed different things or um, not made changes. A couple of years before I switched and decided to go into econ, I applied to a bunch of graduate programs in social studies of science, mm -hmm. and I got accepted into some, and I even had told them I accepted their acceptance. And then a, you know, a, a day later, it like, changed my mind. <laughs> Okay. And decided not to do that. So uh, I was on the borderline, I guess, of doing that. And was that, were you changing your mind for like practical reasons or, or was there just like deep uncertainty about what to do? It was, it was more, do I want to go into that world? Is that world going to be good enough or, you know, congenial for me? And, and I initially thought yes. And then I guess let my subconscious tell me no. So you were, it was kind of instinct, you would just get a feeling and think, okay, don't go with it. Right. It was like, in part, it's about sort of the size of the world you could inhabit. So one of the nice things about physics where I started and economics where I ended up is that you could just do a lot of things and call them that. And then there's some other fields where um, you're going to be pretty narrowly confined to things close to the prototype of that. And so science studies is more of that second sort. Um, whereas economics is much broader and physics was much broader as well. And I think that I do well there. <laughs> I, I think that's done me very well to be in a much broader place where I can just do a lot of things and call it economics. Do you think that one explanation of why, why there are late bloomers or how people become late bloomers could be that some people's talents or interests are just naturally interdisciplinary or or broad in the way you're describing and that you'll you know there is there are fewer maps for that kind of thing and you just will get more late bloomers because it's not um straightforwardly specialized well so the question is if you're going to have a wider range does that take longer training or longer time to recognize right so um Certainly, if most standard training is somewhat narrow, and if you're going to be have a broader range than that, then you're deviating from the usual thing. And, uh, you know, you might, in fact, like need to do several things. To... Right. So, so I guess somebody who's just more uncertain about what narrow thing they want to do might similarly take longer. Okay. But somebody who's just more inclined to have a wider range that also just might take longer both to, to figure out that that's what you want and to realize it, i.e. wider range just means you're gonna take longer training for the wider range. Mm -hmm. So in one interview, you said this, early in life, you're a seller, not a buyer. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Well, many people think about what career they want and what life they want as if they are the main consumer of it <laughs> as if it's about what they want out of it. And, um, you know, when you're independently wealthy, say, 
then you could just decide what you wanted to do with your life based on what you liked because you can pay for it. Uh, if it's a job or a career and you need a job or a career to survive, then you can't just look at what you might want to get out of it. You'll have to have other people get something out of it. And so that's a sale that you're selling yourself to other people. What can they get out of you? So um, you want to keep an eye on what you want to get out of it, but it isn't enough that, you know, if you decide I love singing, so I'm going to be a singer. Well, that may not work if the world doesn't love your singing. Mm -hmm. You'll need to pay attention to what the world likes from you for a while at least. And then if you get some idea of a range of things the world might be okay with from you, then you can start to think about which of those you prefer. And this was the sort of thing you were realizing when you worked at NASA? Uh, so, I mean, honestly, for my early life, I really wasn't paying attention to buyers. <laughs> I was just <laughs> paying attention to what I wanted. And I would just change my mind about what I wanted. And then I would see if anybody else would let me do that. And if somebody else would, then I just switched. Um, but, you know, I didn't try to become a singer or actor or something where it's sort of known to be much more competitive or mm. Olympic athlete or something. I, was, I wasn't trying to be those things. Um, but I was maybe more on the edge of what I could get away with. But you were doing something pretty competitive. Well, initially I was just like being a grad student and applying to various grad student programs. And so I guess I was good enough to get into the grad student programs. And then I wanted to do computer research. And so I went asked, you know, applied for jobs and I got some jobs. And so, I mean, it's more competitive than being a janitor, I guess, but <laughs> not as competitive as trying to be an actor or musician. This um, is the sort of thing that people ad often advise you to do. So it's like the Steve Jobs thing, like do calligraphy, do, do whatever you feel like, and it'll all sort of work out and the, you'll pull the threads together later. But you seem to be saying, well, it's one way of living a life, but it's maybe not a good way. Well, you have to make a judgment of just how selective something is and how selective you are, right? It's a matching thing. So I don't think... I mean, so I think it's basically a brag to tell everybody that I always just did what I wanted. I mean, because some people can get away with that. And you're basically saying, I was good enough to get away with that. I, I could do that. I could pull it off because I was high enough demand. I was good enough. And so I, it is a brag. And, you know, it does apply to some people. Uh, but you have to realize if, if you're just taking it as some sort of inspiration and attitude toward life advice, it's not going to work for everybody. Uh, and so now you, you'll have to ask just how good are you and how lucky do you feel punk about <laughs> how selective you can be? So, I mean, you know, you, you, for most people say who might be listening to this, they, they don't have to just take the first job that appears to them, right? They, they have some ability to select among jobs out there and they should use that ability to think about which things they would like better but they can't just ask, well, what does my heart love? And just do that, regardless of <laughs> what the world seems to offer or what, what quality abilities they seem to have. I mean, so that it's, a, it's a compromise. 
if you were talent spotting or or recruiting and someone came with a cv a bit like yours and they said well i've just been doing the stuff i wanted to do would this count against them would this count in their fit like how would you assess that now so in some sense the person I would be most able to assess would be someone who is very like me. That is when I take a very unusual life path, I'm just going to be much worse at judging people who took other life paths. <laughs> I'm not going to know who's good or not in those other paths. Someone who's near my path, I have a better shot at. Um, and for people who look like that path, I guess the thing I would most be looking for is sort of how driven or passionate are they? Because you meet a lot of people who switch between various things they want to do. And it seems almost like uh, that they just don't have much motivation or interest in anything. Hmm. And they're just sort of drifting past things that might grab their attention. And that wouldn't inspire, that wouldn't inspire much confidence in me. Uh, so somebody who just changes things a lot just because they're bored or um, nothing seems to matter, nothing seems to interest them that I would be wary of that. They, they probably will switch yet again. They probably won't put that much energy into whatever they do. Um, but somebody who is, whatever they're doing, they're really into it and they're really trying hard, but then they also have these other big things that tug at them and tempt them away. That would be more appealing. Uh, you know, I would want to see that it was, you know, a whole bunch of things, each of which they would love to do. But they they aren't can't be sure which one, but whichever one they pick, they will be into it and they will be, you know, really immersing themselves into it and yeah. pursuing it, then that would be better. And then of course that they they are much more likely to be a good generalist or wide range person. So I mean, so some people call themselves generalists just because they can't be bothered <laughs> to get into anything very far. Um and I would want to distinguish a different kind of general. So, so I've, I've had this idea for a while, I'll tell you, which is you might say universities neglect generalists, right? So mm -hmm. we reward people for being very specialized and knowing the best about some very narrow area, but a lot of great things have happened by people who have been in different areas. Mm -hmm. And so how, how could we reward uh, and pick out generalists? And so here's the, so well, problem is that a lot of interdisciplinary areas where you have more than one area, people look down on them. It looks like you're being held to lower standards than you would in either the adjacent disciplines and that you're trying to evade uh, judgment by making it hard for people to tell how good your work is. And so people tend to think that, you know, people in the middle of a discipline are more reliable and higher quality work because they're being held to higher standards and it's easier to judge them. And they, so they think of people who are being interdisciplinary as kind of evading judgment, trying to uh, slip by with uh, like making it hard to judge them. So my solution to that is to try to create a polymath department where we're going to have a higher, not lower standards. Mm. So my standard would be, let's make a department. And in order to qualify for this department, you need to persuade us that you would have qualified for tenure in two departments. Hmm. And I've, I've, I've known people like that, and I might even qualify that way. It's not necessarily that you actually have to have tenure in two departments, but persuade us that you could have plausibly gotten tenure in two departments and two, you know, somewhat different departments. Right. 
right? Not not biochemistry and chemistry of biology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but two substantially different things. So now you see this department will be the elite. You'll have to meet a higher standard to be there. Yeah. And now people might aspire once they've gotten tenure somewhere to, as a next level, become considered a polymath to have gotten to move up. And then I think this would go better in terms of it would have more respect. It would be more acceptable Mm. and it would then inspire more people to that level of generality by holding it as a higher, not lower standard. And you would expect maybe more of those people to be, you know, quotes, late bloomers, because they would have had to be just doing more different things and not, not settling into something earlier on, right? Um, maybe, I, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm more sure that they would have to sort of just be inclined toward generality. So I, definitely a lot of people manage to focus enough to get tenure and then don't want to focus quite so much. Right. And so that we would be tempting those people to say, yeah, it looks like you've got tenure in here, but now you'd want to drift over there. Well, that can contribute to, to what we're looking for. And right. maybe even departments would be proud of their members who had graduated to the polymath right. division. And they would then support you in your efforts to broaden, uh, to, to make that next step. One of the models I have of different sorts of late bloomers is um, like someone who has a double peak. So if you think about Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect, he has a great career. By the time he's 40, he's done some original stuff. He's, you know, he's a successful practice and whatever. But then by the time he's 60, like it's all dried up. He's teaching apprentices. He's not fashionable. The Great Depression is happening. He's not getting any commissions. And then a few years later, he starts again and he builds falling water. And in the last, I think, quarter of his life, he does more than half his work, including the Guggenheim and other major things this could be something in the polymath but like right it would encourage that view of a second career right although in that case it might be you know he didn't actually go to a separate department he, he stayed in his general area sure we, we, we still might want to wait as to anticipate and celebrate that i mean so it's, it's definitely true that i mean i meet a lot of people who maybe they're 22 years old and they got a degree college degree and they said oops it was the wrong degree right. my life is over i wasted it <laughs> you go no your life you're still at the beginning you have a lot you can just pivot and move over there it's not that much of a problem you're a little delayed compared to some of the other people who might have started that path before but you've got plenty of time and so i think for a lot of people a lot of people like they they have some sort of career path and they reach some sort of threshold like say tenure and then they quit <laughs> Right. Like they, that's enough for them and they've achieved what they wanted. And, uh, but they might be 30 years old or something. And in some sense, they've got a whole life ahead of them. They could try lots of other stuff. So you went to get your PhD starting age 34? Yes, with two children, age zero and two. Oh my God. <laughs> um, um, You've sort of talked about this, but I'm interested in what finally tipped the balance. It sounds like it was a kind of a kind of gradual process and the, you know, this was the straw that broke the camel's back. But was there a sort of conversely to that, like a moment of inspiration, a moment of, I, you know what, if I don't do it now, 
it, it was more desperation, I would think, than inspiration. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, you know, I was a research programmer and, uh, you know, in a, which is a low level position within a research lab. So a research lab is a high level prestigious place, but a research programmer is kind of the bottom of the, of the line. Someone who's there to support the researchers in what they do. Um, and, you know, it was decently paid and we had children, <laughs> stable life. And I just kept feeling itchy that I had this big potential in life and I wanted to realize it. And that just kept grating on me as more and more unacceptable. So now this is a, I think, somewhat common male scenario, I think, which is men are more primed to achieve glory in life and men are more primed to take risks to achieve glory in, in some sense. Uh, good, you know, in the middle, good enough isn't good enough because glory calls, right? Some something greater could be achieved, and the question is, will we try for it? And so, you know, I, I was it was torn there because my wife didn't want me to do that. <laughs> she didn't want me to go back to school and quit my decently paying job, especially as we just had two kids, age zero two, and she had a you know private practice as a therapist, and she had a lot of clients in her area that, you know, if she moved with me to a different area, she would lose all her existing clients and her connections. Um, so it was a lot to ask. And, you know, at that point, I basically chose to ask for a lot by the argument that I'm desperate. So I had to sort of be unhappy, be unhappy with my life and communicate that to my wife and associates to say, you know, please understand, um, this is, you know, a, a strong drive. Uh, I just, I got to, I got to see if I could make it, you know, so you've probably seen, there's a lot of movies or whatever, I don't know, Rocky or something, some ambitious boxer or something early in life. And their family might tell them like somebody's offering you a sales job. Somebody else wants you to, you know, work in a shoe store. And, you know, why are you throwing this safe life away for some long shot? that hardly anybody ever succeeds at, right? That, that's a classic story. There's a famous rock song, Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls, by a woman telling the man, you know, stop to stay near like creeks and rivers nearby that are calm and safe and stop trying to go for these long shots. It's making me think of all those people. This is sort of um, a recurrent topic among my generation. Like you have a good job, you're a lawyer or a consultant or, you know, whatever you don't want that job and you for many people the worst thing is to not reach desperation because then the equilibrium is well i'll stay it's not actually that bad i'll stay it's but it's rolling the dice i mean the desperation you roll the dice and a big fraction of dice rollers fail <laughs> you gotta put that into the equation I, you... I got I got lucky. I don't, I, you know, I think ex ante, I didn't have any strong right to expect that I would succeed. But did you think like that? Or did you think at the time, you know, I'm just going to do it and make it work? I just thought I got to see. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of scary. Yeah, absolutely. When did it stop being scary? At what point did you sort of start to feel like you were settling into something that had worked? Well, getting a tenure track job offer 
okay. was a you know, relative sign of success. That is, most people who get tenure track job offers get tenure. Um, so that meant like more than 50-50 shot of reaching a successful endpoint. But most people who start a PhD program won't get a tenure-track job offer. So starting the PhD program is the moment of taking this risk where the odds are against you. You've said that you were lucky. What other factors played into you being one of the people who did get a tenure-track job offer? Um, I mean, presumably some aspect of who I am and what I can do. <laughs> but I mean, did you work harder than your my, peers on the program? So, so I think I did. So, um, you know, I was again, age 34 and I was around lots of 20 year olds, you know, 22 year olds or whatever. And they just didn't work as hard. <laughs> Uh, that is, I just was a parent and a student and little else. And I, I, I've realized how much was at stake in the sense that I risked my family and, you know, my career financial security, at least, to, uh, to take this big chance. And so I was very motivated to work hard at it. And a lot of 22-year-old students, it was just, they didn't know what else to do. <laughs> they just you know, went to grad school instead of trying to go get a job. That's often a common thing for students. They just want to keep on the path rather than switching. It sort of feels less risky for them to just stay on the path they've been on. Uh, but they're not that into it. Was there anything about having had a background in physics and computers that gave you a distinction or a difference on the program or helped you in any way? So... I once talked with a Stanford professor about, you know, going back to school. And he said that older students are known for being different than younger students. So one way older students are different is that they are more driven and more organized and they sort of put a higher priority and they, they, they work harder at them. That was a positive, but on the, his, his, his opinion, the other side of the equation was they're less pliable. They more come in with their own idea of what they want to do mm. and what's important. Whereas a lot of younger students are just willing to be clay molded by their advisors and just be willing to, to form their priorities based on whatever somebody else around them says. And many professors prefer clay. Sure. <laughs> In your um, polymaths department, would you maybe have a PhD program where it's like the Senate, you know, you have to be 30 before you can apply? Um, I mean, I think I might rather just have advisor advisee relationships with, but not classes per se. I mean, I think if you've gotten tenure somewhere and now you're like trying to get your second tenure such that you could be applied in, you're well past the point where you need to take classes. But I mean, not for those people. You need a mentor I mean, and advisor. But could your, fac could your polymath faculty offer a, a PhD program? But rather, but unlike the specialized departments, you would have to be older to get on that program. Is that something that would be like marginally beneficial to academia? Like there used to be colleges just for mature graduate students, right? I think there still are. I haven't thought much about it. I guess the, the, the I mean, I'm thinking of the difference between taking classes and just doing research. 
Mm. And thinking that honestly, we only really need classes for younger people. Uh, that is by the time you're older, you should be able to just sit down and do research, but you might very well want an advisor of some sort. To, oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. To, to, you know, give, to look over what you're doing and work with you, et cetera. Um, but I, I do think the polymath department could offer classes that everybody could take where they emphasized sort of generality, the connections between fields, sort of broader topics that are being neglected by fields. I mean, that would be a fine thing to draw people's attention to, and then they would have the authority to speak on that. You mentioned Stanford. You used to go to classes there while you worked at NASA, and you I think you went without paying, so you got the classes but not the degree. Right. What did you learn from, like, why did you do that? What did you learn from that? I mean, literally, I learned the content of the classes. What classes were they? In that sense. So there were some econ classes, I, some uh, computer science classes. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, basically, I could just um, start to see what fields were like by sitting on classes and seeing what they taught. Uh, and that this was sort of a way to shop, right. see what, what fields you might want to go into. Uh, to get a sense for what, what their issues were and how they did things. Okay. And then you went to Caltech for the PhD. Why did you choose that school? So I had had a physics background and then I went into computer science, uh, but sort of with a physics sort of perspective on computer science, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and I started to learn more about social science, but my physicists basically trash social science. <laughs> physicists <laughs> privately do not speak very respectfully of social science. They basically talk as if those people are just making stuff up. They don't know how to be rigorous and careful like we physicists do. And if we just bothered to quit doing physics and went over there for a few years, we could probably just clear them all up because we know how to do science and they don't. So you know, that sets up in my mind this concern. Um, I, I'm more interested in social science topics, but I'm wondering whether I can believe it. And then I came across this paper in science, science magazine, mm -hmm. about experimental economics, people doing lab experiments to test various uh, social science hypotheses and mechanisms. And that sold me in the sense that physicists trust experiments. Right. That's, that's, that's legit. That's real. So, you know, that right there convinced me, oh, if I went into that, then we would be learning real things. We would, it would be real. Uh, it wouldn't just be made up. Uh, that would be solid answers. And I was interested in some institution designs and you could see how to directly test them at experiments. Uh, so, you know, how to different ways to say buy medicine or whatever, you could run a lab experiment and test your idea directly in the lab and see how it works. And so I could just more directly see things I wanted to do there. I wanted to do some experiments on the institutions I was interested in. So then I looked up who does experiments and I saw there was a group there at Caltech mm -hmm. and Caltech is sort of known for being very techy and very respected by physicists. Right. 
And so, well, that looks like a good match. I would get, you know, go to Caltech, very well respected places for the hard sciences where they were doing experiments in social science. Okay. Now, now just what I learned <laughs> once I got there <laughs> was that they had this norm that you couldn't just take an institution to a lab experiment. I mean, you could, but you shouldn't. They, they weren't going to allow that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what you had to do is have a institution idea and then a game theory paper, a theoretical model of your institution. And then you could test the theoretical model. You weren't supposed to just go test institutions without a model of it. Mm. And so that was an obstacle to my plan. Because for many of my institutional ideas, I didn't have a model of them. I just had the mechanism. Right. So how did you, what did you do about that? Well, I learned how to make models. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned in that process that the people making models actually know a lot. That is, as a physicist, I might not have believed them from a distance, but as someone looking at the details, the details persuaded me. I mean, they had many experimental tests of very specific game theory models, but just more generally, it, it made sense. It worked. So I was willing to learn theory. And then in essence, most, you know, my thesis work was basically all theory. I didn't do lab experiments as part of my PhD thesis in the end. So as well as being a discipline change, it was also a sort of reasonably significant mindset change. As have all my moves been. Okay. And so, I mean, what people who grow up in any one discipline don't, usually quite realizes just how different many different disciplines are in terms of how they think, what their toolkit is, how they define a problem, what's a good enough contribution. Those vary quite a bit across academic disciplines. And there's no, um, there's no real way of teaching that kind of thing. Like undergraduates don't get classes in, by the way, this is how different areas think differently about similar things. I don't know of them, no. So mostly, so I have this observation that uh, if somebody wants to have a conference, say an academic conference about X and Y, <laughs> the combination of X and Y, say law and economics, um, one strategy you could do is go look for the people who have most studied that intersection between X and Y. Mm -hmm. That's not what they do. <laughs> <laughs> what they do is they go look for the most prestigious people in X they can find and the most prestigious people and why they can find, and they put them in the room again, even when these people have not actually looked at the overlap much. That's just the standard operating procedure in creating these things, because their agenda is to put the most prestigious people in the room. And the people who look at the intersection are just generally not as prestigious as the people who have stayed in each discipline. And this is, of course, one of the reasons why interdisciplinary work often fails. Right. This is where the failures come from people in a room who haven't, you know, looked much at the other side and haven't talked past each other. Yeah, interesting. Um, so now you're at George Mason University, and I think you're part of a sort of, quotes a small group um, of, of sort of peers and, and people who are, you know, sort of sharing ideas and so forth. And my impression, I mean, very much an outsider's impression is that that small group is quite enabling of the work that you all do in the economics department. 
Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a basic question. What do your colleagues do for you? Yeah. Right. Um, so in academia, uh, you know, some colleagues are co-authors, for example, or, or people on your same research project. And for them, it's much clearer what they're doing for you. You're working together with them on a particular project. But most academics don't co-author much with most people in their department. So there's a basic question, well, what are they getting out of each other? Now, you know, in some sense, well, they need, there needs to be a department there with people who teach different things so that all the different courses get covered so that, you know, there can be a program. Hmm. But that doesn't mean they really need to talk to each other much. It just means they need to be there, you know, similar time and place to, to teach classes, right? And in many departments, they don't actually interact that much. That's a, a, a sad secret about academia. In even most mm. departments, most of the professors are not actually intellectually engaging each other much. Uh, they show up for class, they show up for seminars, ask some questions, maybe they'll go to lunch, but at lunch, they mostly aren't talking ideas, talking gossip, politics, TV shows. Right. Um, not ideas, right? So what do you get out of colleagues? Now, the one thing you can just sort of get is a set of consultants, right? If, if you ever come across some topic not in your, you can go ask somebody about it, right? Maybe they'll answer some questions, but you could probably have done that with other people around the world. Um, so if you have some sort of like a style of doing things differently, then one big risk is you will feel just all alone in the world. Like nobody else there, mm. out there does things your way. And so just having a bunch of people near you who are doing something somewhat like you just legitimizes the idea that you could also be like them. And that seems silly or trivial even, but I think it's true. I think you just kind of need some other people around who are in your face, that real people, you can see they're not gods or anything, but they're making a thing work that you can make work. How significant is it? I'm sort of filling in some gaps, but how significant is it that before you got to George Mason, you didn't have a sort of group of like-minded people? Does, is that one reason why it took you a little longer to get to, to you know, where you were going? Um, or no? I don't know, but I, I mean, I think it's somewhat lucky, but I think just when somewhat similar people find each other and stick together, that helps them. But I also think some people, at least for a while, are just bullish and pigheaded enough that they just hope that'll happen eventually, but it doesn't have to be true now. They're just going to plow ahead. And, you know, I often, I look back on my younger self and I go, he didn't seem so scared. Shouldn't he have been more scared of what he was doing? <laughs> Shouldn't he have had more doubts about just plowing ahead and doing his own thing his own way when hardly anybody like ever did anything like that? But in some sense, that's you know something we humans are primed to do at times is to uh, plow ahead in a somewhat arrogant, confident way in the absence of a lot of reassurance that it'll work. So you're not sure that if you'd been part of a different peer group at that age, it would have 
you know, brought you down to earth a bit, as it were? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I still was pretty different from my colleagues there, even if they were more like me than most people. And in some sense, I might have been the most different among them in terms of mm. having a different set of research priorities. But I still think that eventually it'll it'll just wear down on you. Nobody around you is at all like you. Yeah, you need some sort of peers. Yeah. Uh, what mentors have been important to you, and where did what stage of your career did they appear at? Um, I've definitely had people who helped me, and people who were senior relative to me, but I just don't think the relationships rose to. The, what people think of when they think of a mentor relationship. Mm. So I'd, I'd hold the phrase mentor or the, or the description mentor for a relationship where someone is relatively close and you're kind of modeling after them and they're giving you a lot of advice. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not sure most supervisory relationships really are of that form. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, so people will use the word mentor because it's sort of an aspirational description of, the, of how they'd like the relationship to go. But um, I, I kind of honestly say that described me very well. So I was a pretty independent, say, PhD student. Mm -hmm. uh, so I picked a advisor who, who didn't mind very independent students and would give them more freedom. I mean, some, some PhD advisors don't. They are very constraining of their students and others will give them a lot of rope to hang themselves. So I picked one like that. And in the past, I've also chosen bosses and superiors who were also more willing to let me go my own way and right. not make me do it their way. So you didn't um, want a mentor? And well, of the strong sort, of the sort that, you know, of the make you into, you know, turn you into clay that reforms another copy of them. Right. Um, so now I have some questions kind of more about your ideas and how they might help okay. us think about late bloomers, but you might say, you know, these are stupid questions because this is a long way outside okay. of my area. <laughs> okay. um, so you wrote a blog post saying that belief in late bloomers is populist because it sort of allows people to think that the way we get allocated when we're young, you know, it could be wrong and there's, there's something else out there for me and that kind of thing. Yeah. But if we live in a world dominated by signaling, is it not rational to believe that there's some significant subset of people who will be late bloomers because not everyone who is high potential is good at signaling or responding to signaling in the ways that help you climb a hierarchy or get noticed or whatever? Well, that explanation seems to not need signaling to be part of it. I mean, if, as long as you have some initial path and people who look initially promising and not all of them turn out to be as promising as they looked, uh, then you get the same effect here, whether it's signaling or not, that makes people look promising. Um, you just need a difference between how promising they looked and, and how they turned out. But one way that like whether someone actually is good, one way that we know that is that they know how to signal it to the right sort of people, right? Which is why you often get in any group of genuinely sort of genuinely sort of high achieving people. There are some people who are there based on, you know. So I would say most signaling in the world is signaling of 
correlate features and not usually of the direct feature of interest. Uh, so an educational degree, for example, will, will show that you're smart maybe and conscientious and can do some work, but you know that's correlated with success, but doesn't directly imply success. Mm -hmm. And many other kinds of things that we use to signal, I mean, I could flash my rich, my expensive watch. It might mean I'm rich or it might mean I just spent a lot on an expensive watch. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's, you know, most signals we have are correlates. They, they, they all else equal, they indicate something, but it's not necessarily that strong a connection. So, uh, you know, honestly, when, when we directly see how good somebody is at something, we, we don't call that the signal, we call that the thing, right? But it's not always easy to see how good someone is at something, is it? Sure, but if somebody say is an artist and they have a portfolio and you know they've got three things in their portfolio, but both of them look pretty good to you, then you're thinking, well, this guy may well produce more good stuff in their portfolio, but it's kind of a noisy signal. It's just three things there. And maybe they just got lucky. But you wouldn't, but you still wouldn't think of it as a signal so much as well, that was their actual performance. Here, here's their things, here's what they did. Whereas you might have a signal of somebody being an artist in terms of the, you know, what they an award they got or some um, school they graduated from or some letter of recommendation from somebody. Those would be more indirect signs. Um, in a world of M's, would we have any reason to expect more or fewer late bloomers, or would it have no? Would this? Would this idea of late bloomers have no sort of relationship there? So a striking feature of the world of M's is you would have billions or trillions of M's, but they would mostly be copies of the few thousand most productive in you know original humans. So that means on average, each emulation would have billions of other copies out there who are very similar to them much more similar than we are to each other. So that means once you get a track record for how this M performs in a range of jobs, you have a much better idea mm. of how they will perform in future jobs, a much closer connection. So, uh, you know, it's like, we might not be sure how well of good of a physicist Einstein, Einstein's children would be, but we think if we actually had saved a copy of Einstein when he was 18 years old, <laughs> and revived that copy again, we have more confidence that that copy could be a good physicist. Uh, it's, it's at that level of similarity of basically going back to the same person and rerunning their life a little different. And because of that, they would just know much better what these people are likely to be able to do. Now, you know, that does depend on them having a large enough clan that they have a large enough history of them having done a wide range of things. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're a clan of only, well, there's only been a hundred of you so far, well, we know more than you would of a human, but still there's a lot we don't know. Once we've had a billion of you, now it would depend like, okay, across how many different careers do we have the billion? You know, if, if most of those billion were plumbers then we know really know well how good of a plumber you'll be, but if now you're trying to ask us to consider you for a management role or something, we'll have to ask, well, yeah, but how many of those billion were managers? And if that was only a hundred, now we're back to the other situation of, 
still not knowing a lot. Uh, but mm -hmm. it does mean that there's a lot less attention to what in our world is sort of early life signaling. So in our world, because each person is so unique, you have to make them jump through a lot of hoops whereby they produce standardized sig signals we can compare to each other. And then we're still pretty uncertain about what they're going to be like and their abilities. M's, again, because billions of copies of, of um, the same one, we just got a lot more better stats. Okay. There is a view, a sort of quite commonly held view that in the hard sciences, especially physics, and also in maths, there are just very few, if any, late bloomers. And that most of the you know, most of the work is done by people in their 20s, maybe in their 30s. What do you think of that? So um, there's this famous distinction that I think makes sense. I can't remember the author who drove it, but between areas where a, an excellent performance will be some sort of breaking out of other traditions versus areas where excellent performance is going to be a synthesis of a lot of things all pulled together. And, and so, you know, that's a correlate of whether, when people peak. So in places where, uh, you know, the distinctive thing you do when you're excellent is to sort of just have a whole distinctive new style that, that breaks away from previous styles. That's the sort of thing that blooms earlier. And if you, what you need to do to really achieve something great is to sort of just have a lot of stuff you pull together then that tends to correlate with being a late bloomer. And of course, that would also be true of a generalist. <laughs> that yep. is, uh, if a generalist is someone who knows many different areas and then can pull them together and integrate them well, then a generalist will also be a late bloomer in that sense. Uh, whereas you, you might've thought maybe there's a different kind of generalist, like a generalist is just someone who comes up with a whole new general way of thinking about things in which case you would expect them to be in the first group. Mm -hmm. So uh, this class distinction, you know, is often applied to math and physics, at least some areas of physics, where you say the people who had the biggest contributions are just people who could find a different way of thinking about things in math or physics, and therefore they tend to be the earlier bloomers. Um, but I think there was a recent, I mean, in the last couple of years, some paper, some study I blog basically asking when during your life is your biggest contribution most likely to happen. And the basic result was pretty uniform across your life. Oh, that's Sinatra. I, I don't remember the author, yeah. but, um, but basically that suggests that you shouldn't get so obsessed about, you know, no longer being a 25 year old, no, no longer having, you know, making the 25 year olds big contribution if they are, uh, you know, you should just every year keep trying because every year you get another lottery ticket on whether you're going to do your biggest thing. Why is it, though, that like there just are fewer people in their 50s who've done big work in physics and maths, even though the, the continuous probability of success sort of is, it seems to be true, there just also seem to be fewer people over the age of 50 doing these things? So, I mean, there's a lot of things going on and it's hard to tell how important each one is, but I think the following is, seems to me pretty important that 
the more you know, the more that you can target your efforts to be close to what is likely to be successful in your area, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a 50 year old, you know a field pretty well. And so now you can pretty well judge what's likely to be popular or fashionable in the near future in that area and what tools it would require. Um, and you've already invested in a certain set of tools and you're going to be more likely to just do something that builds on the tools you've invested in. Uh, when you're really young, you just don't know the lay of the land very well. You don't, you don't understand the difference between what's promising and what's not very well. And so you're just being a lot more random because you have to be, you just don't understand it very well. And that randomness is going to show up as creativity when you're lucky. Um, that mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, there's just gonna be things you're gonna try that 50 year old wouldn't try, not, not because you think it's a good idea, it's because you just don't know the difference. The 50 year old is gonna just be much better targeted at what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And you're just gonna be much ran more random. So if one of your random forays happens to be lucky, then that'll pay off and you'll, and you'll do it and the 50 year old won't because they were smart right. enough not to even take that long shot chance. But you, the 20 year old, you don't know the difference. So you, you just end up taking a lot of chances, not because you're creative or ambitious, just because you're random. Yeah. Um, people, well, I first of all, how many other people do you think there might be out there who could be, you know, future Robin Hansons and make a big risky change in their life at a time when it's like financially inopportune or, or difficult, but, but they're not doing it that we might want to encourage to do it. Do you think it's a big subgroup or do you think it's not a major group? So the question is how to distinguish the people you want to from the people you don't. So, so there's this common observation that I think is roughly right when somebody says, should I try to be an actor or a singer or something like that, right? Like, should I take the chance? Am I good enough to take that chance, right? And uh, the, the advice is often of the following form. Only do it if you can't not do it. Yeah. That is, if, you're, if this is just such an important thing to you, you're just so driven that you just can't not do it. You're going to be doing it one way or another somehow. It's just like you're really just driven to do it. Then we might say, okay, fine, do it. Um, because if there's enough of those people doing something, then, you know, the rest are going to be at a pretty big disadvantage if they're not that obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's already going to be plenty. So I, I think I, I guess it's related, but, um, I think I like some trumpeter or something, I think it was a trumpeter who, um, you know, talking about the secret of their success or something, they just said, well, I knew that I wasn't as good as other people. So I was going to have to compensate by just practicing more hours a day. And that they just knew that they could push themselves harder than other people could <laughs> mm. to just go for more hours. And, you know, that seems sad to me. <laughs> But there's some truth 
to that, that is a lot of the variation in success is just about how much energy people put in, which is a combination of just how driven they are into it and just how much stamina they have. And so actually a neglected area of who succeeds who doesn't that people don't really talk about is just raw stamina. Mm -hmm. Some people don't need as many hours of sleep. <laughs> right. Some people don't need as much free time. They, they can just drive themselves to work more often. And honestly, of the people I've seen who are the most successful, there's an awful big correlation with they, they just have more stamina. And of course, often it's they, they have a spouse who's willing to like let their profession be their life. And that's, that's another big thing that's made a big difference in many people's life is they have some very supportive spouse. Right. Because one thing that you're like, I like this explanation, but if there are people out there who are in your position, but like their wife says, what are you crazy? This is never going to happen. We have a, we have these children. We have, we need money. Like I'm not giving up my practice. Like those people end up like, like there's only so much they can do. They can have the stamina, they can have the obsession, but they can't do the PhD. Right. Um, there so are, there here's, are, here's another ground. So maybe this will help. I've worked in a lot of different areas, right? So I've allowed myself to dabble in a lot of different topic areas. Um, and after a little while, I've decided to hold myself to the following standard of when going into a new area was a waste of time or just where it was justified. And my standard is this. If I go into an area, I need to spend long enough there and understand it well enough to publish something there that meets the standards of the locals. I, I, or at least I could, that is, I can contribute to it. And so that standard will, will cut out a lot of wishful thinking and, you know, dilettanting. Right. Um, that is, you say, sure, you want to study this other area, you're bored with these things, fine, but this is the standard you're going to hold yourself to. You're going to study this for long enough and come up with an idea and then executed such that at the end of that, you've got a contribution to this area that people in this area would recognize as a contribution. And if you do that, then I say, fine, it was, I approve in retrospect, if you're having done that, if I see a track record of you, each time you went in a new area, you did that, I will say, okay, that was good enough. Now, from the point of view of maximizing sort of the, your world reputation, this is not maximal in the sense that the world doesn't give as much credit or attention to people who just come in and do one or two things then go on to another area. They much more rather that you stick around and fight for your reputation and join coalitions that will fight against other coalitions, et cetera. So they're not that eager to support people who just come in and do one or two things. Okay, but nevertheless, they still might acknowledge that you did one or two things. Those were real things and they, they were really contributions to the area. So, I mean, I, I might say that I was holding myself to that standard in the sense that I had already done several things and in each area I was able right. to make a contribution and I could see how much work it was to make a contribution to an area. And then I could ask myself, am I willing to try that again? And I guess if we were trying to distinguish between people as well, like someone who's gone to Stanford and done the classes just, just for doing them, that's a good sign. Whereas someone who says like, this is really what I want, but they haven't done something of that sort, that's more difficult to say, well, how much do we believe in this person? So um, here's a different set of issues that you, might be important. Um, 
my father and my parents always had projects. Mm. So they generated their own projects and then they executed them in various ways. My dad was in the finance and then he was a pastor and they were missionaries and my mom wrote books, et cetera. And so um, there was this idea of like generating your own project idea and then executing it. And I did that in school too. So I don't know know the story that like as an undergraduate, the first two years of physics were is going over a standard set of topics. And then the next two years of physics were going over the same topics with more math. And at that point I was unhappy with that. And I decided to just roll my own curriculum in the sense that I would study the subjects my own way by playing with the equations. I wouldn't do the homework. I would just ace the exams, which I did. And then I would let other people decide what grade to give me on the basis of seeing that I aced the exam, even if I didn't do the homework. And I had a series of projects that I defined for myself and then would execute myself. Or I would just get the idea that this was an interesting thing to do and then go figure out how to do it and go do it without supervision or advice or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of a self-directed project orientation is just something that sets you up well for a life of being a loner (laughs) researcher who's (laughs) not with the whole group who's going to tell them what to do, but is going to be able to just go into an area and define a project and execute it without a supervisor or a co-author or a class that you're taking or something like that. Right. And so I've learned over time that this is an unusual feature. Most people in school, I mean, you know, so a lot of students say, you know, I want to learn something. What classes should I take? And I say, why do you need to take a class? Just go learn it. And for a lot of people, that doesn't make sense. They they don't know how to learn a thing if they don't take a class. Right. Uh, And for a lot of students, they just don't know how to sort of direct their own life in this literal sense of deciding what to do and then just doing it without some supervisor advisor mm-hmm. curriculum telling them what to do. So I think if you if you're going to be a, a generalist, i.e. you're going to be someone who goes into an area without precedent, without at least local social precedent or people telling you how to do it or what to do, you do need to be somewhat more self-directed. You're going to have to be able to do it yourself. You said your parents were missionaries. At one point, yes. Are you religious? No, uh, but my most of my family has been quite religious. Um, and so some people perhaps correctly accuse me, accuse me of giving a religious style and aura to many things that I do, even if I'm not formally religious. So that, that's a different issue. <laughs> do you think that's true or do you, do you not agree with that about yourself? I, I, I certainly think that I assimilated a religious worldview when young, in the sense of growing up in a religious world. And even if I reject formally the religious dogma claims that I inherited, I still inherited a way of thinking about the world and a way of framing the world that I'm then going to project onto everything else I see. Like a lot of what you've said is very consistent with the parable of the talents, for example that like, it's a sin not to use your abilities and you shouldn't wait to be told. You should just, you should just go and be, and be using them. Um, but I guess that's not how I think in the sense of it's, I mean, that, that also seems silly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's about getting something done. I mean, if, if your motivation should be a thing you want to get done, I mean, just using your abilities, that, that seems stupid. <laughs> 
don't want to just use my abilities just to make sure they get used. Like, you know, stretch my legs because I haven't stretched my legs in a while. But, you know, it, well, the, no, the problem chess a long time. My chess abilities have gone to atrophy, <laughs> but I shouldn't keep playing chess periodically just to make sure I have those abilities. I mean, I should only practice those abilities if they're useful for something. Yeah, I, th- I think the parables, it means that everyone is, everyone's good at something, as they say. And if you're not using that, you know, if you go home and you just watch Netflix all night, rather than doing something useful that you could, like you say, your parents always has projects and stuff, then some people would draw a moral distinction between that. And they, it's a similar thing. I, well, this is the reading of your career, right? Like, there were other things you could do. You had those abilities. And... Like if you hadn't gone off and done that PhD and tried to tried to make use of those talents in this reading, it would have been that would have been wrong of you not to try and use those talents because you were sitting on that capability and and that would have been a waste. So when I try to model other people's behavior, Mm. I am inclined to model their behavior in terms of drives or motivations about showing off and showing the world that they are good. Right. And so I have to, in the abstract, believe that that must drive some of my behavior as well. Sure. But in my head, (laughs) in terms of what I'm consciously focused on, I feel that it's important to be mainly focused on the thing I want to do. If if there's not a thing I want to do, then I don't see it such a bad thing to laze around. The reason I not laze around is because there's stuff to be done that's glorious and interesting and spectacular and has enormous potential. So in my mind, so early on, I think I chose, say, Einstein as a model, career model, sort of. So I think it's a basic fact that people like to pretend they don't care what other people think, but in fact, they do. And you can't much change yourself to not care what other people think. But what you can do maybe is to change who it is that you're trying to impress. To put in your mind the person that you are imagining judging you and wanting to live up to their standards. And so early on, I chose people like Einstein as my model. That is somebody who saw big potential and went for it and tried to realize a big, interesting insight. And that's the sort of thing I always wanted to do. Now, if I had not found such things, that would have just been this abstract hypothetical. I mean, some people are motivated to go find dragons, right? I have no idea where a dragon is. So that doesn't motivate me much. I I, I have no idea where I would go searching for dragons, right? But I have come across enough big, interesting ideas that seem to me unexplored or insufficiently explored that I've got this long list of stuff that's worth doing. Are you saying and so that's what pulls me that that's and I would most respect somebody else who is pulled by the things they want to do as opposed to feeling some obligation to use their talents. But if let's say we could make you live forever or for an extraordinarily long time and you would be ran- nice, please. Thank you. Sure. But then but then maybe you would run out of things to do. There would still be work to be done in the world, but you would run out right. of things that interest you. Are you saying you would then it's spend possible. eternity like, you know, gardening and, and watching? I might. Things? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, in that situation, it's an open possibility. Yeah. So in my mind, yes, actually, I do actually believe that 
there is a limited amount of big and interesting intellectual stuff to be found. And eventually our descendants will have found most of it and they'll have to live in a world where most of the interesting stuff is known and has been found. That's the kind of world our distant descendants will have to accept and deal with. And I'm not in that time. I'm in a time where there are great, huge, new, interesting things to be found. Um, we suffer because of that. That is our world is impoverished and has war and all sorts of things by wrong because there are all these things we don't know. Yeah. But at least on the positive side, there's things to find, interesting things to uncover. Um, so I can uh, be motivated to do those. But yeah, once they're all found, yeah, there's other things. Maybe I'll enjoy gardening. So this doesn't limit your appetite for living forever. Well, I mean, living forever, if you just reframe it as every day you want the option to go on. And but, now that's a much more manageable thing. Every day, uh, I have that choice. Do I want the option? Sure. As opposed to not having the option. I mean, the other alternatives, there's a day when you don't have the option, you die. That day you die, you don't have the option to keep going. If you say, on that day, would I rather have the option to keep going? Sure. On reflection, I might not choose that option, but I want the option. Okay, so you don't want to live forever. You want the option. I want the option every day to go on or not. And there's a good chance that when the world runs out of interesting things, you will take that option and not do very much with it. Um, the fun thing about options is you don't have to decide <laughs> ahead of time what you're going to do with them. Fair enough. Um, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have done? Or do you have any oh, other I mean, views on late bloomers? I mean, I think it's interesting. I mean, since you're studying late bloomers, I, I'm more interested in probing what you think or what you know. Sure. Um, so I, I you know, describe this idea the whereby late bloomers might be seen as sort of an egalitarian pitch, right? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's some other way in which, I mean, is there another way in which late bloomers are admirable? Because I, yeah. I, I feel like people are trying to pitch late bloomers as being admirable. And you might think, well, oh, I'll sequel. It would, would have been better if you bloomed earlier. I mean, sure, we'll take your bloom late if, you, if we're going to get it, but why not? Why is blooming late admirable? I don't know whether it's admirable or not, but I think it's real. I yes. don't think it's always the result of like delay or imposition. So one thing that people, you, it's a very implied, but people tend to believe, I think, that if you've bloomed late, something got in your way. And it, can we solve that problem? Whereas I think a lot of late, a lot of the late bloomers I'm studying. Um, they couldn't have bloomed earlier. <laughs> Their kind of thing yeah. doesn't bloom already. Well, they don't bloom early. They're kind, right. They might be in a, like novelists. Right. You, Jane, you can be Jane Austen and write Pride and Prejudice when you're 19, or you can be Penelope Fitzgerald and start writing when you're 60. They're both great novelists. Um, I don't think there's any guarantee that if Jane Austen had lived a long life, she would have kept getting better. And I, the normal explanation for Penelope Fitzgerald is she had a terrible marriage, she had a chaotic life, her husband was a drunk. But I think if you look at the, look at her until she's 34 when she has children she's not writing she does spend a whole life learning learning languages going to places and this all comes out in the fiction later and i think some people just run on that timetable so i'm interested not in like is it admirable but it is real right some people right. bloom later and that's but it, so i would say there's okay. a sense in which it's more admirable in the sense that if you bloom early so there's two things you get out of blooming. 
One is you, <laughs> you get to accomplish whatever you were accomplishing. And the other is you get the celebration and adulation of people noticing your accomplishment. Right. And that's a, the people who bloom early, not only did they get to accomplish things, then they get to spend the rest of their life as the celebrated accomplisher who is known for having accomplished. They get you know better mates and better associates and better invited positions. They get to give talks or whatever, right? And a late bloomer, even for the same accomplishment, they will instead having spent most of their time in obscurity, not being celebrated, having to hope that they would eventually accomplish, having to resist the people looking at them, deciding they were failures mm. and to persist with their hope that they could succeed. And then they eventually succeed, but they don't get to spend much time in the limelight once they, once they do succeed because they've spent most of their life not. And so as sort of a matter of compensation, we might think, well, once we notice somebody is a light bloomer, let's, let's give them a little more celebration. <laughs> also succeeding young, can um, set up this thing where the rest of your life is like slightly disappointing because you've done it now. And, you know, yeah. like, I don't know, how happy was Einstein when he was old? But still, if you take the mid, the mid career person and you give somebody a choice, would you rather at this point be past your peak and be celebrated, but now it's downhill, or would you rather be in obscurity, <laughs> hoping that you will eventually succeed, but not being very sure of that? Which would you rather choose? I think people more, people, still... more people should choose obscurity. I think that's one of the problems we have. They should choose, but which would they choose? Oh, they all choose to peak early. Okay, see, well then, from a point of view of envy then, uh, the, the first person isn't deserving of much envy. I'm sorry, of the sympathy yeah. for their, you know, yeah. feeling sorry right. for themselves, right? Because they would rather have that than the alternative. And well, and also because it's low risk. Like, yeah, I just want my success now. And then I've had it. And whatever happens to me, I can say, like, I, I made that success. Whereas if you choose the obscurity path, it's like, it's higher risk. Like, as you were saying, yeah. about your PhD. And in a way, it's a, it's a symbol of the like the lack of risk appetite in modern culture that we don't view late blooming in that way. We more often view it as like, one day I'm going to wake up and I'll discover that like, I'm a genius. You know what I mean? Like, it's not right. like I'm going to toil in obscurity for 20 years and then it'll happen. It's, Ooh, I, I'm going to work out. I'm going to wake up and I'll be Tony Morrison in the morning, <laughs> which is just, you know what I mean? It's this fairy right. tale idea. And that I think is wrong. And I think that's a. That's yeah. A so honestly, in order to have hope that you will be a late bloomer, I think you need to have had shots that you thought could have gone on goal. Yeah. Right. They didn't go on goal, but they had a plausible shot. At it. Like you have a whole, you just have a whole lifetime of taking shots at things that don't quite work out, but they had a chance. And then you have an expectation that maybe one of those eventually will go in the goal and you'll finally right. succeed. But if you aren't even taking shots, there are people who don't take shots who then come out really strongly later on. Um, like, do you know Sister Wendy, the art historian, TV presenter? She was, um, she was an actual hermit. She lived in a trailer in a, right. in a forest and she studied art. She didn't start studying it until later on. And she, was, she took like her annual trip to some small Norfolk art gallery and happened to be seen by a TV producer who realized that having 
a very, very uh, sort of old school Catholic nun on the TV being hugely enthusiastic about erotic art was a, you know, a winning formula. <laughs> and she, I can see that. she totally, I mean, she's amazing. It's like Julia Child. She's a, she was a superstar, but she had made no shots on the goal, but partly because, you know, right. you're not allowed to, you're a hermit. Right. Um, and Penelope Fitzgerald, the same. Good point. So I think, you know, it's like, if you've made, if, if you're looking for a late bloomer, who's more in the middle of their life, I agree. They need, they need to show some like, something that they've done but there are people i don't know whether it's like a midlife crisis or the menopause or grief you know those things that can happen after 50 that can sort of right tip your life upside down a bit some of those people suddenly come out and you're like oh wow you're you're a right. whole new person now i don't like right, right. so I, I should revise my views i might more say like if you are constructing yourself methodically mm. steadily over a lifetime yes and improving yourself in ways that you can see at least you are working at something and building something yeah. in yourself your insight your observations your self-control whatever it is yeah then you might have a plausible hope that this self you've constructed will eventually be useful for something yes and, and I people will find a place for it and you, but you can see that it's a real thing. It's yourself you've constructed. You have better judgment. You can figure things out. You you can, right? You know, you can plan. You can put off gratification. You you you've you've become a person who, you know, is yeah. a solid construction. But often I think these people are not good at knowing how to match themselves to right. Because these are the people who can't fill out a mortgage application, right? It's like. That it's not that they're idiots, they just right. cannot navigate the world. But there's something about them they've been paying attention to yeah. and, and making well. Oh, and then, yeah. of course, it could well be that most people like that never get framed as a late bloomer because we never find the right way to use them. I think that's right. And I think it's um, there's potentially a lot of people out there who, who need some sort of push or some sort of link up or just good luck, right? I would love somehow to sort of just give those people a little more confidence in themselves in the sense that so we have a world what celebrates like people who go through some early success path, right? And they go to the right schools and then they get the right job and like, mm. and then anybody who doesn't go along that path, we got this, you're a failure, you know, sorry, you know, that that's the past success and you didn't go to an Ivy League school and you didn't get a job at McKinsey and then, you know, sorry, you're just... But right. and I wish we could sort of give more people the sense that there are just so many ways, if you will just methodically learn and build yourself, that, um, you know, we may be able to, to find a great use for you later. That's, and, and then put more work into finding those people and trying to match right. them. And that's why I'm writing this book, because I think that there are people out there, like my mother was one of those people, and people like that need something they need to be able to pick something up that says on its cover, there are people like you and they've done it and this is how they did it. And you should keep going. Like Margaret Thatcher, right? When she's in her thirties, late twenties, early thirties, she writes to the conservative party and says, um, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this politics thing anymore. It's, it's too much. I'm not, it's not working. I'm just gonna be a lawyer. And then like just over a year later, she writes back and says, okay, no, no, I am gonna do it. Um, but only put me down for like safe seats because she obviously just can't go through any more like trauma. Um, and they write back 
like this is Margaret Thatcher and they all know she's good, but they obviously don't know who she is. They write back and they say, they basically say, yeah, no, we'll, um, we'll bear you in mind. And it's like, what if they, what if that hadn't lucked out? Like, what if she'd just been one name further down the list or, or what, you know, like that's crazy. We'll bear you in mind. So there's a, a, there's a key trade-off here. Um, so in a, in a world, say, of class hierarchy, where everybody is in their place, right? Mm. You don't have any uncertainty about your future. You just know where, right where you are. And if you're not at the top, then that's just who you are. But you just don't have to feel guilty about it. You never had any choice. There was never anything you could do about it. Right. Uh, that was just where you were sat, slotted, right? Now, in a world where we're uncertain about who can be where, and there's a lot of ferment and a lot of possibilities, you can have hope that even if you're low now, you could be high later, but you can also now feel guilty that if you aren't high, it's your fault and you should be blamed. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, by giving people hope, we're also letting them feel guilty and blamed for not doing yeah. things. I have no way of proving this, but I, I do believe that a lot of people, instead of reaching your position, which is like, it, it's desperation, so I'm just going to do it the desperation is expressed more as, well, look, I failed. Right. And that set it aside and chalk it off. And now you don't have to try anymore. And it's, you know, I don't know, like it's difficult to believe that if you were, if you were that driven that you would ever be able to give up, but I'm sure people do. I'm sure they do. That's not so crazy to me. I think it's just more some randomness of your emotional configuration at the moment, which way would seem to be the easiest way out. Right, your personality, you're sort of a victim of your personality in that sense. Uh, I mean, I guess I think an awful lot of how the world goes for people is in terms of just, you know, how they emotionally manage the threat of sort of people accusing them of failure, people Mm. accusing them of not trying hard enough or not succeeding enough. And it's just a really emotionally wrenching thing to even think about and people just have these random ways they adapt to it depending on context and it makes an awful big difference in various things that is a lot of people don't try to succeed because it would feel much worse to fail after they tried to succeed than if they just never try yeah i think they're more comfortable never trying maybe because it's um a slightly kooky concept or like a religious or spiritual concept or whatever so we've slightly we're uncomfortable with it, but um, inspiration is quite important, right? A lot it's of certainly things. a lot important. Just having people around you who who are robust. So it's a it's a classic story. It seems trite, but it is true. Like if you're in a world whose nobody has ever been a doctor, then you think, how dare I think I should be a doctor? I could be a doctor. Right? Who am right. I to think that if nobody around me has ever done that? Right? If two of your parents are doctors, <laughs> now you might think. What a, sh- you know, how dare I not be a doctor? They'll be so ashamed of me. Right. People's expectations are changed by just people they personally know who did various things. And that seems somewhat sad because it means it's all this randomness and who does what. But... Do you know um, Chris Gardner from the movie The Pursuit of Happiness? It's like a Will Smith movie. I probably have seen it, but I can't remember it at the moment. He's, um, he's a real guy. He's, he's got his own stockbroker's firm. And he's like, he's very successful, but he had this, they had this awful childhood and, but he was good at school and he went into the Navy, but he didn't have a degree in this, you know, X, Y, Z. He ends up as a medical 
uh, technology salesman, but he's a very high potential guy. So he's, he's been like heavily mismatched. And when he's 27, he's walking along and he's got a kid and he hasn't got any money. And he's just in that kind of phase. And he sees a Ferrari and something about this, the way he describes it, it is uh, like, like it's, that. <laughs> yeah, it's, but it's a real road to Damascus moment for him. Like he actually stops and says, Oh my God. Why don't I have that? Yeah. And he goes up to the guy and he's like, what do you do? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And this guy gets him an interview and he he's 27 with none of the background that a stockbroker would have in the eighties, but he works his way in and he, he, he makes it. And it's like, if he didn't have that inspiration, which that's very like St. Augustine, right? It's very, how do we give more people those moments of, you know, the penny drops, if you like. That's another question. So the closest thing to magic in our world is motivation. Right. Motivation just appears or it doesn't. There's these various magical incantations and formulas you try to do to make them appear or go away. And they just have this enormous power. They are this magical power. Some people are just motivated and then just do stuff and other people are not motivated. and I think we still just hardly understand what makes that difference. I think more um, grown-ups, for want of a better word, should experiment with finding out young people's motivation. There's a great line in David Ogilvy's yeah. memoir where he says, he says, I didn't study a, a, a single minute when I was at Oxford, right? And then I go and get a job and I realize that if you work, you get money. And he said, if they'd paid me to study at Oxford, I would have been the Regis Professor of History. (laughs) Yeah. Because he'd never found his motivation. Once he got it, he becomes David Ogle. Almost almost everybody, when you have your motivation, you look at it and it feels obvious. But it's just hard to realize that if you didn't have it, it wouldn't be there and it wouldn't be obvious. But in a way, university should do more of that, right? It should do more of like... Just let's find your motivation. Is it money? Is it status? Is it, I want to sit in the library? Well, except a standard story about what school is for is exactly to train you to do stuff when you don't feel very motivated. That is the story. (laughs) That's the story. That is modern workplaces, mostly full of jobs that people aren't that into. And the whole point of school is to find the people and train people into this habit of, you're in a classroom, somebody tells you the assignment, you do the assignment, even if you're not that into it, because that's just what everybody does. And that's the practice that school is setting you up for. And the selection is to find the people who will do that. And that's what modern workplaces are looking for. People who will, in fact, do the job when they're not very motivated or not very immediately directly motivated. And we could say that is the point of school. But it can work the other way around, right? Like Ray Kroc, who made McDonald's into McDonald's and made it global and everything. He, I mean, his memoir is called Grinding It Out. He ground it out until he was like 55 in a job he didn't want. But he kept going because he was, he was trying, he wanted to find his success. He want, you know, and he had right. a string of failures and he sold everything. And he, like, you can, you can flip that and say, well, we're going to give you your motivation and that will help you that will get you to do all the stuff you don't want to do because you'll still be working towards your motivation. I think in a world without school, people just have a much wider random range of motivations and 
some of them are really into things, but a lot of them aren't. And it's just harder to more reliably get people to do stuff. That is, yes. that's, okay. yeah. and so if you're an employer looking for, to fill a lot of slots with people who will mostly do them, uh, if you could go to a place where people are sometimes really lazy and self even destructive and other times they're really motivated and into things, would you rather choose from that pool or would you rather choose from the pool of people who mostly just do what they're told and aren't very inspired? But another way of framing it is employers always say, we want people who have like researched the company and really want to come here. But I would always look for people where it's like, no, I want someone who really wants whatever they want and is going to come and use me for a couple of years on there because they'll do that'll be two great years. Someone who's compliant could be two great years, could be 10 years of, oh, my God, you know, nothing changes with this guy. In some sense, I mean, just more fundamentally, you and I might agree that sort of the thing we're most often looking from people is just are they motivated by anything? Right. Right. Whatever it is, just is there something that's driving them? that's pulling them along. That's just the focus of their attention that they, they want. Just anybody with that sort of a thing is interesting. And then you could look for the match for whether what's driving them can match what you're interested in. But somebody who doesn't have that is just a whole different category of person. Yeah. I think it's very underrated right now in selection. Robin, this has been great. Thank you very much for your well, time. Nice talking to you. Good luck yeah. with your book. Thank you.